Welcome to the Garden Culture Podcast, hosted by me, Bailey Van Tassel. I'm a self-taught gardener, busy wife and mother, and small business owner on a mission to live a garden-inspired life. Each month, we will explore what's going on in the garden and fields, as well as get to know incredible people who infuse their own lives with the magic of the garden. For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned here, please visit us at baileyvantassel.com slash podcast. Today's chat is with my friend Kristen Colvin, who has a horticulture degree and has been using it online to help people really in layman's terms become a successful backyard gardener. She's done some really incredible things we'll chat about in the episode as well with children and plants and gardening and nature, but she's going to help us understand the fundamentals of pests in the home garden. And it's really more simple than you think, but she gives the most practical advice that we all need, especially right now in summer. So we're going to be dealing with current pests, but also hoping to prevent some for the fall winter garden. So this is like an absolutely crucial episode. It's a good one to jot some notes down with or like note down, you know, the timing of things. I'll make sure the show notes are chock full of good intel for you guys. But this is truly a great chat with Kristen. I hope you love it. Hello, Kristen. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I am so excited. We've had this idea in the works and you are one of the most knowledgeable and articulate people that can really break down horticulture into layman's terms. So I'm super, super jazzed because you know I'm all about making it more approachable for those of us gals who didn't, who, who don't do the science, didn't get the degree. Um, but like to pretend. And so I'm just so excited to hear from you and to dig into some nitty gritties. Yes, I'm excited too. Um, Okay. So before we even start, uh, I do want to hear a little bit because I'm always super curious about your background. And when you were growing up, um, was there a major influence in terms of nature and gardening on your life? Or what, and if, and what did that look like, I guess? Uh, uh, absolutely. So I grew up, my father was the gardener. He always had a small vegetable garden wherever we were. Um, he loved flowers and trees and all of that stuff. It was actually his grandfather before him. And so I was always doing those things side by side with them for as long as I can remember. And I really loved that. But I think what sealed the deal is when I was in middle school, my parents got transferred to Singapore. So my brother and I got to go to Singapore. Oh, and wow. It was amazing. One of our summer vacations, you know, while we're there, they wanted to show us, you know, that, that area. We got to go to Borneo. And I got to see a jungle for the first time. <laughs> and there was nothing uh, that pressed on my heart um, like that jungle did. And and truly, the week that we spent in Borneo was the most life-changing week. I, it just, I just wanted to be in nature all of the time. And so I was, as I was brainstorming ideas for what I could study, Um, my dad was very quick to recommend horticulture to me. I didn't even know that that was a degree path. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But the idea that I could just study plants, talk about plants, be outside with plants all day long. I was like, yes, sign me up. Okay, um, wait, so- quick. So when you did this week in Borneo, how old were you? Oh, 11 or 12, something like that. Was it immediate? Were you like, did you know you were like, oh my God, this is my thing. This is my place. And then for the rest of your life, you were always connecting back to that moment. And that really shifted you into this upset, like love of nature. Or did you reflect back on it and think like, oh, actually that's what it was. No, I think that, I think that it was both. I would say that it was kind of both at the same time that, um, And and the thing was, is it wasn't just the plants inside of a rainforest. It was the interconnectedness of it all. It was Mm. the very first time that I had seen a carnivorous plant growing in the wild. Uh, So, and I screaming monkeys and you know what I mean? Like all kinds of lizards and snakes and birds, just the interconnectedness of it all just absolutely fascinated me. And also frustrated me because I didn't know the name of any of it or mm. any of it. <laughs> At that point, I just became super duper curious about, you know, the world around me, wherever I was, whether that was in the suburbs of Houston, Texas, or, you know, wherever I was, um, mm. which was where I, where I ended up growing up, you know, after Singapore. So, um, yeah, so I think it was both at the same time. Okay. That's lovely. And the reason I ask is because, and you know this and anyone listening knows this about me, but they don't know about you is that you have a thousand children and (laughs) I'm always curious, like, you know, I know that the impact baking in nature and the garden is so beneficial for our kids, but I'm always curious of other people based on their experiences. I really want to take my kids to travel internationally and expose them so much to different environments and cultures. And it's kind of like, I wonder at what age is the sweet spot to, to introduce these moments so that they can have their curiosity peaked like yours was, you know? Yeah, I think I would, I would say at whatever age you can afford to get them there, you know, like yeah. I think, I think that, you know, they will be impacted as early as, you know, toddlers um, <laughs> you know, exposed to different foods and different peoples and different way of life. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So absolutely. As early as you can do it. I love that. Okay. So you, your father recommended horticulture as a career path for you and you did in fact pursue that. Will you tell me a little bit about what that looked like for you? Yes. So... Um, I, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I was looking around for a school, um, and I settled on, I had toured briefly Clemson University out in South Carolina, and I had toured that school at one point, really had kind of fallen hard for it, so I set my sights on that. Um, I wanted um, I wanted to go over there because it was in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Basically, it was just like mm. green waterfall mountain. I mean, it was just beautiful over there. So that's uh, that's what I did is I uh, went out to Clemson, um, studied horticulture, graduated from there in 2003, I guess, graduated from there and then stayed on at Clemson um, pursuing a graduate degree in environmental physiology um, before I got the graduate degree, the babies started coming. So, um, <laughs> shift gears there. Um, 
but yeah, so out there in, uh, out there at Clemson, um, that's that's where it happened, and I loved it. I'm just I just loved my time there. I love my professors. I just I just loved it. That's so great. Well, and you've used your expertise in a really beautiful way. Um, one is through the Children's Hospital of Orange County, uh, which is local to me, not to you, but in teaching, you know, gardening and sort of nature study to kids that are in psychological distress inpatient there at the hospital, but also at your local preschool. Like, I feel like you've used your knowledge in a way that really works for your life in the moment that you're in now. You've stayed very present and very committed to like the main thing uh, being your family, but also found ways to use your passion and expertise to really spread, spread the news. Yeah. So the other thing was that right after I left the graduate program, I was an elementary school teacher and I taught science lab. And I really thought that maybe that's what I wanted to do was to oh. actually teach children. Um, and my grandmother told me a hundred years ago, she was like, I think you're going to be a teacher. <laughs> um, so it's really funny how both of those kind of passions have collided that now I'm using my degree to teach people online about, you know, kind of the principles of horticulture and home gardening, but then also like you were saying to teach teenagers who are in, you know, who are in distress at the Orange County, you know, the Children's Hospital of Orange County in an inpatient program doing therapeutic gardening, which is, it's just wonderful. It is. You do such a good job coming up with cool activities and finding ways to teach sometimes somewhat complex, like concepts to these kids in a way that's really hands-on and really inspiring. Yeah. And my goal there is, is always just for them to walk away with um, you know, that the world is wonderful, mm. you know, like, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, to really dip into being curious about the world around them. It brought me so much joy at the age that those kiddos are, yeah. um, really hoping to inspire them, uh, to dip into that curiosity. And I think that, you know, for some of them, it'll really bring them some joy. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, so pivoting a little bit because I want to spend some real solid time talking about pests. Um, and that's the subject of our chat today, though I feel like we could probably do some follow-up some follow-up conversations about other subjects. But you particularly have really great knowledge about like that the home gardener needs for dealing with pests, prevention, management. And even before pest prevention, I would say you were actually someone that really taught me a lot about getting the right kind of seeds and plants to like to investigate how hardy they were in my zone and how they had been sometimes bred to prevent certain pests and diseases and all that. So, um, nice. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I think you were the first person that was like, no, no, you need to read like the seed catalog properly. All that being said, where do you start when it comes to just pest 101 knowledge? Where do we even begin when you're talking to just like the backyard home, like a couple of raised beds gardener? Okay, so where do we even begin? Where most people begin when they come to me is they say, what do I spray to 
you take mm-hmm. care of such fast. And so um, what what I would like for people to do is the very first thing that you need to do is you need to identify the pest and um, love it or hate it. AI technology can be your friend in this in this arena. Um, it is very easy to do a Google image search of a pest that is decimating your crop. Um, and then you can actually cross check that with your local extension to see if that pest um, that you have the image search for is actually one that is in your zone, um, that is in your region, that is a problem. Okay, and when you have that information, when you're armed with that information, you might be able to do some things in the current gardening season that you're in, but really what you want to do is start planning preventatively to do better for next year. Mm, okay. So the very first thing that you need to do when you're dealing with pests, first things first is you need to figure out what the insect is mm-hmm. because different things different treatments are going to affect different pests. Okay. So yes, really quickly. And this is something I, it took me a really long time to investigate, but I want you to explain it to everyone listening. So when you say local extension, what is that mm-hmm. and what does it do? Okay. So in the United States is kind of the only, the only country that I can speak speak of in the United States, each state has uh, an extension office, or I say most states have an extension office that is affiliated with your um, state ag university, usually. So here in the state of South Carolina, where I am, um, when I say local extension, what that would mean is Clemson extension. Clemson Mm -hmm. is our our state ag school here. And so when I go to Clemson Extension's website, they have a wealth of free information about um, timing to plant things, varieties that do well here, pests that I might see on, for example, my tomatoes, Mm -hmm. Um, not just diseases, Um, you know, California has one. If, If you don't have... Surely it's available with a quick Google search if you type in its name, extension office, that it's going to bring it up. Got it. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Because when I was first learning to garden, all my ag friends were like, oh, call their local extension. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, like, is there like a number that I dial? Like, (laughs) and then obviously became better educated on how to use those resources. Um, Different extensions have different, um, you know, here in South Carolina, not only do we have our our state extension, but each county in South Carolina has an office that we can actually, a physical number that you can. That's amazing. Um, Okay, so we've identified the pest that the pests in our garden. And I know Many of us, if, if you've gardened at least one or two seasons, you already are going to know off the top of your head, like a few things that have plagued you because there's really, in my in my experience, there's not been one season that's gone by where I haven't had some pest presence. And that's just part of it, um, in my opinion. So, so what next? Um, after you... Um, after you identify the pest, then at that point, you can start a treatment for this season. Um, 
And I always say, start with the mildest, um, with the mildest thing possible. Um, meaning least chemically, right? The least, um, and so what that might mean is if you have aphids, for example, which is something that in the spring, um, and early summer, lots of people are plagued with aphids. Mm -hmm. Now, first things first, um, if the aphids are, for example, on my cosmos, which I always get aphids on my cosmos, I need to think, well, I'm not a flower farmer, you know, so I'm not trying to sell these cosmos. Um, I'm not a flower farmer. I'm just, I have the cosmos there for the benefit of pollinators. Mm -hmm. uh, and so do I actually need to do anything? Yeah. You know, is anything necessary? Um, especially for pests like aphids, which are kind of like the chicken nugget of the, you know, the, the um, yes. the, what am I trying to say? The, um, you know, they're just the small beans. Like they're the least of our worries. Yeah. So the insect predators, for example, ladybugs and whatnot, like they absolutely feast on aphids. And so uh, if you just leave them there, what you're actually doing is attracting insect predators to your yard to feast on other things. So you can just leave them there and do nothing. Or uh, if you're if they're on something that is a little more high value then you might be able to just spray it off with water. Um, if spraying it off with water doesn't work, then you could step it up and use some type of an organic insecticidal soap. Always, always, always read the instructions of everything that you buy. Follow it to a T um, because that's the law. Um, and, and then from there, you could step up to something more. Um, so... First, determine whether any kind of intervention is needed. Sometimes it's the very end of the season and your plant is past producing and nothing is needed. You know, you can actually just remove the plant and now and now the pest is gone. Yes, I love that. Well, and I've had um, experiences where, and specific to aphids, they got onto like some baby kale and were so stoked. And I actually just cut back the kale, amended the soil really well to make sure my soil was really nutritious, strengthened the plant's root system, and the kale came back stronger than ever and totally overcame the aphid. So I feel like aphids too, they're, they don't spread as much as you'd think. And sometimes just removing a plant and then keeping a super, super good eye out and getting a yes. harsh water flow will kind of like get you back on track. Sometimes with plants, um, you can actually just cut off the leaves that are infested and that is going to not eliminate the pest, but it's going to keep their populations under control. Yeah. And so inside of the home garden, I think that it's really important for people to remember that total elimination of pests is, is really not going to happen. You know, like that shouldn't be the goal that you're shooting for. It's just not going to happen. Um, what the goal should be um, is balance. How many how many pests can we tolerate and still get the crop that we want? Um, and so that can oftentimes look like just cutting back some leaves that are you know really damaged by um, caterpillars or um, squash bug eggs or something like that. Cutting those things back to help keep the uh, number the pest numbers under control. 
I love that. I love that. I think that's exactly right. It's balance. How much can we tolerate to still achieve what we'd like to achieve in the garden? It's not about total elimination. I think people go overboard and panic when it's like, no, it's it's really sort of this coexisting and keeping things in balance. You know, I think that's exactly right. And I feel like people are too hard on themselves. If they have a cucumber plant and they've they've gotten like 30 cucumbers off of this plant, but they have two cucumbers that, you know, something has happened to them. They really beat themselves over the two cucumbers. Right. You know, instead of just celebrating the other ones, um, you know. So I think it's really, like you said, exactly that. It's balance. So when it comes to prevention, um, I want to get your opinion and somewhat experience, I suppose, on well, I guess I'd be curious to hear kind of what your preventative approaches are, but specific to like uber organic methods of like using trap plants and companion plants and yeah. herbs and the placement of certain plants as a preventative method. So one of the favorite things that I like to do is to alter the time that I'm actually planting a plant. Um, so we have uh, a late blight that plagues all of our tomatoes here and where other geographic regions might be able to plant some early summer tomatoes and some late summer tomatoes. Um, that's not really possible for us. We can't plant late summer tomatoes without tremendous amount of fungicides. Um, so, so I just don't plant them, right? Mm -hmm. I just plant my summer tomatoes out as early as I can. I do the same thing for cucumbers. I actually watch the weather and will oftentimes plant out before my last frost date um, to get in front of diseases and pests. Ooh, okay. And then when diseases and pests show up, you know, I've had my fill of whatever and they can just have the plant. I'm going to remove the plant. Um, so I like alter planting dates. That's one of my favorite things that I like to do. And you can actually... Um, oftentimes look to your local extension agency to see what the window for your specific zone is. And oftentimes, if you plant at the very, very front of the window, or even plant before that window has started, but give it some frost protection, um, then you might be a little more successful. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. The second thing that I like to do is to just completely cover my plants. If I have a plant that does not require a pollinator, right? Lettuces, spinach, broccoli, kale, cauliflower, Brussels, none of those things require a pollinator. So they don't need to be grown out in the open. I'm eating the leaves, right? And the flowers. So I'll just net them. And that way the insects can't get in there. They can't feed on them. And that's one way to completely, you know, insecticide-free um, get some great crops. And what was the last one I was going to say? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, oh, trap plants. Um, my One of my favorite trap plants that has been super successful for me, particularly this year, is actually sunflowers. And um, we have a huge problem with leaf-footed bugs on tomatoes, tomatillos, peppers, um, however, the leaf-footed bug's favorite plant is actually a sunflower. So I'll plant sunflowers. The bees love them. 
But when the leaf-footed bugs land on the sunflowers, when they congregate, they're very easy to literally just knock into a bucket of soapy water. So I'm not spraying anything at all to get rid of those pests. I love that. This is like the kind of information (laughs) that a seasoned vet will know. That's like, these are the tricks. I love this. Yeah. And you want to know that um, it's very, it's very site specific and it's accessible to everybody. You just can't give up. You just have to keep trying new things as you learn about new techniques you know, implement it and your old favorite one and see which one does better. Mm-hmm. And by the time you've been gardening 20 years, um, you know exactly when diseases are going to hit, when insects are coming, what varieties work best. Yeah. Um, and then everybody can be like a source of wisdom for the newbie gardeners, you know, in their yeah. neighborhood. Yes. No, I love that. Um. Okay, any other sort of final tips before I ask you my favorite question? Because we're running a little low on time. Um, Anything else that you feel like is super crucial to know or that you just feel like you wish everyone knew about pests? I I feel like one of the best ways to control pests is to truly know what the pest is and then you probably need to dive into its life cycle. Mm. That's... Pests are significantly easier to kill in the nymph stage, which means shortly after they have hatched out of their egg and they're still soft-bodied, you can use significantly milder pesticides. But you need to know what they look like because they often do not look the same as the adult. You need to know when they hatch out. So once you've identified the pest, um, really dive into its life cycle. um, And literally all of that is available online. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I've actually never done that. And I think that's really, really, really solid advice. And I think all of this too stems from like keeping some good notes. And I know it it kind of seems like silly to say, but this is something where each season I totally forget or things start to like mush together in my brain. But I look through my notes and can go back and remember the issues that we had and then do some digging before I've done any planting, like you said, and be able to like really be set up for success. Yes, I think that it's almost impossible to be successful year to year without um, without a garden notebook of some sort because your season is not going to look the same. The weather is not going to be the same, but it might be the same as four years ago. And, and really, I mean, I don't remember what I had for dinner last night. I'm certainly not going to remember what time of year, you know, exactly when I planted tomatoes or what varieties that did well for me. So um, a notebook, like is absolutely essential to being successful year after year. People ask me this all the time if there's like a specific gardening journal or notebook that I've purchased that has a format or guidelines in it. And my answer is always no. I just use like a very cheap grid mead five star from the grocery store or Target or whatever. Do you have one though? Do you have something special? No, I use like, <laughs> I use one of those blank skin, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not actually blank. It has the dots in it, and I mm-hmm. like the dots, and I can kind of create my own um, little grids. And so, yeah, yeah, no, I use the blank one, and I like a blank one because I actually like to tape different things in there. If I'm trying to remember, 
you know, something specific about a seed packet or insight, something specific that I have read, I'll oftentimes like just tape it inside of the journal. Yeah. I draft paper, map out my um, garden every single year. It looks different every single year. Things get rotated around and I'll just tape that graph paper in there. Yep. Yep. Same. What a treasure too. I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit of a it's just a cool, it's like a little treasure map for the garden season after season. And That's a fun, right. I hope, like, somebody, hope that somebody goes through it long after I'm gone and is like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so I'm absolutely obsessed with reading about gardening. I don't think I can consume enough information and I'm finding that to be true of most gardeners. Um and I know you love to read. So I'm curious if you have any top recommendations for people when it comes to gardening books. So um, I really like to read, actually, I like to read scientific journal articles about um, up and coming science, um, which is probably not something that the average gardener would like to read. But the books that I have picked up um, in the last, I guess, year that have been really fantastic, a really fantastic read for me are Gardening Under Lights by Leslie Halleck. Mm. Um, and if anybody is starting seeds under lights um, or wants to know how light affects plants, um, it is as informational as a textbook, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's written in a, in a really fantastic way. So Gardening Under Lights is fantastic. And then probably my favorite read this year as far as gardening books go is Plant, Grow, Harvest, Repeat by Meg Cowden. Mm-hmm. Um, and that book is all about succession planting, interplanting, and creating food forests, which is absolutely the very, very best way to plant a home garden. Mm-hmm. Um, the more I say this actually in my uh, classes, my therapy reading classes that I teach almost every time, the most resilient ecosystems are the most diverse. Mm. And that can be applied as big as you want or as small as you want. So if you have a four by four garden bed in your backyard, know that your plants or that your garden will be the most resilient to pests, the more diverse it is. And uh, Meg's book really, really speaks to interplanting um, and creating like a food forest as a home garden. I love those two books right now. Oh, I love that. Also, if you really want something kind of Dr. Michael Durr, he was a professor at out of Georgia um, and he has written just so many textbook type things. So if you are into landscape plants at all, his books are um, are on the shelves of every horticulturist. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you need to know how to propagate anything, mm. um, it's inside of his books. Oh, that's fabulous. That's so good to know. I'm going to order this one by this plant grow harvest repeat because I think it sounds incredible. And you are gonna- I'm so excited. Yeah, so if you don't follow her, um, Meg has Seed to Fork. Um, she's she's fantastic. A really wonderful person, too. Very oh, I knowledgeable. That. I love that. 
Oh my gosh. Well, this is so incredible. Just, I know this was the actual tiny, tiny tip of the iceberg in terms of what you're knowledgeable of and what we could talk about. But I feel like this gives everyone a great start, especially heading into fall, to have a little bit of a roadmap because truly knowing your hardiness zone and your own backyard, your your microclimate, your garden, that's the fundamental. And then applying these principles on top of that, it, it's personal. Like gardening is actually very personal. It is incredibly personal. And I really believe that you can glean lots of information from people but there's no way to be the expert in your yard without you just doing it year after year after year. Totally agree. Totally agree. Well, thank you so much for your time and for coming on to chat with us. Oh, thank you for having me. This was really fun. This was a great conversation. I love it. You're the best. I'll chat with you soon. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. Bye. I hope this episode has been balm for the soul and inspiration for the heart. I would love if you left a review to let me know your thoughts or anything you're interested in learning. And I'm so grateful that you found this space. For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned, visit us at baileyvantassel.com slash podcast.